Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 45. We get one whole week with just section 45. Now this is kind of chapter 2 of section 29. Remember the last time we had a whole section? It was 29. And if you listen to that podcast, we reminded everyone, don't get caught up in the flies and the maggots and miss the whole point of that, which was that Jesus is going to prevail. It was a time in church history where they were very discouraged. New York was not kind to them. They were getting persecuted. And the Savior gave this incredible vision to them that Jesus is going to prevail. So here we are in Kirtland. Once again, persecution has raised its ugly face. If you look at the section heading, Joseph writes that many false reports and foolish stories were published and circulated to prevent people from investigating the work. So they're having to deal with a lot of false reports out there that are causing people to turn away from investigating the church. And so the Lord once again gives a wonderfully comforting section that you are on Team Jesus, and Team Jesus is going to be victorious. We're going to talk about the city of Enoch, and then we're going to remind you of the greatest story that Jesus loved to tell, his favorite story he told all throughout the scriptures. He's now going to tell it to us. It is the victory of the Latter-day Saints. It is the building of Zion and the city that will rival the city of Enoch. So we'll get there. But I want to start off in section 45. It begins with just such a tender little scene. In verse 3, he calls himself the advocate with the Father. Sometimes we don't ponder exactly what that means. I, I personally have this vision of Judgment Day where all the evidence against me is somehow presented, every mistake I've ever made, as if somehow Satan were prosecuting me or someone was saying, how could you let this guy into the celestial kingdom? Look at everything that he's done. And in my mind, here's the process. Someone stands up and presents all the reasons why I shouldn't be saved, all the mistakes I've made, And they end their case. And I just, can you imagine me looking at my lawyer, who is Christ, saying, how in the world? I I did every one of those things. I did. I did every, I made every one of those mistakes. How could I possibly even have a hope for salvation? I am that imperfect person they described. And I can't possibly counter that with the good things that I've done that will erase the memory of the bad things I've done. What in the world is my advocate going to say? What is my defense against all the prosecution? Now watch what Jesus does. My advocate presenting my defense to the Father. And he says, Father, this is verse 4, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, and the blood of him who, was, who thou gavest that thyself may be glorified. In other words, Jesus isn't going to counter with, well, Bryce did a few good things, so maybe he might get credit 
Jesus doesn't counter with me. Now, here's my defense. Ready? Jesus looks the Father in the eye and in verse 5 says, Wherefore, Father, spare him, because he believes on my name. I want him to come unto me and have everlasting life. I'm sorry, but there is absolutely no other verdict the father could make than, okay, you got it. He's in. He's into the kingdom, not because of his merits, but because of the son's merits. With all my imperfections, struggling, crawling behind, I still choose to be on Team Jesus. And that's enough for him to say, save him because he believes on me. We will be saved because of the goodness of the Savior, not by our merits. Our job is to believe in him and to be cleansed by his atoning sacrifice. And that's enough for him to justify our defense and to present the case to the Father. I just, I love those three verses. They mean the world to me. What you're talking about reminds me of Lehi talking to Jacob. And so in 2 Nephi 2, verse 3, Lehi speaking to Jacob says, Thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. For thou hast beheld that in the fullness of time he cometh to bring salvation unto men. And you note that Lehi doesn't say, Jacob, I know that you are going to be blessed because you're so great, but it's because of Jesus. I just love that idea that my defense is not that I've done something to merit salvation. It's that I believe in Christ and Jesus has done something to merit salvation. And he's pulling me in with him. Now, the whole rest of this section is, again, a reminder that Team Jesus is going to be victorious. So in verses 6 through 10, he points to himself. Listen to, he calls himself Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the light and the life of the world. He reminds people in verse 8, I came into the world, I came into mine own, and they did not receive me. But those who did receive me, Those who did accept me, I gave power to do many miracles and to become the sons of God and that they can obtain eternal life. And of all the people that were ever victorious, he points us to a city like the one we're going to build. Now, I remind you of that story that Jesus tells, his favorite story involves the building of the greatest city on earth. That's how this section's going to end. So we're going to get there, but we're going to start with an image of a group of people who already built a city, and they already were victorious, and that's the city of Enoch. So starting in verse 11, he points to that he is the God of Enoch. He separated them, and they built a city reserved until a day of righteousness to come. And we can do the same thing. We can get into that city. The reality is, verse 13, we are strangers and pilgrims on this telestial planet. 
if you find yourself like so many others saying, this isn't where I belong, this isn't home, and I'm looking for home, well, you're going to find it. We're going to build that city. We are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, and we shouldn't be too comfortable here. Yeah. And yet the reverse is also true. I think, Bryce, there are times when we feel like a little taste of what it was like before we came here. For me, that's Christmas morning when my kids were little and they would open up their packages. You could almost taste heaven. We get little snippets of what our heavenly home's like. And I think the invitation here to this little band of Christians is to build this city. In fact, Joseph Smith said, we ought to have the building up of Zion as our greatest object. And Joseph's going to refer to this where he's going to say, prophets of old have looked forward to a day when Zion could be built. And so I really think that that is a underlying message that even though things are going to be messy, even though there's some things in section 45, like you said, this is like DNC 29 part two, God's saints are going to be doing something totally different. And that's this building of Zion. Yeah. And all throughout our lives, as we are reminded that we are strangers and pilgrims here, we do get sense of home. We do get those little inklings. I love this statement from C.S. Lewis where he says, The book or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Do not mistake the things of the world that bring happiness and joy as being the source of that happiness and joy. They are simply the vehicle through which we were reminded that we are from another place. This is not our home, and we shouldn't be too comfortable here. And every once in a while, we get inklings of that home, and we get reminded that we are pilgrims and strangers here. We are searching for that home, and we will find it. Jesus is going to come, and we are going to be with him. And we will find the rest we have been seeking. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to shift a little bit and talk about verse 7 and 8. So in verse 7, the Lord says, I say unto you that I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the light and the life of the world, a light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. I came unto mine own, and my own received me not. But unto as many as received me gave I power to do many miracles and to become the sons of God. And even unto them that believed on my name gave I power to obtain eternal life. Verse 7 is packaging a lot of stuff that John's doing in the New Testament. Alpha and Omega are the first and last characters of the Greek alphabet. What Jesus is saying is he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. And those two symbols can be his name. The alpha, it's the beginning and it points upward. 
an omega is almost like a broken circle. And there's a lot of scholars out there that have talked about that symbol being super duper old. Is it from Egypt? Is it from Mesopotamia? We don't know. And we'll put some of this in the show notes. And I give you some links. You can you can read Othmar Keel. You can read uh, Tom Cryer. They do some really good stuff with this that I try to show you this idea that that omega could represent a gate. It's the gate by which we come back to our heavenly home. It's also what's called the Hathor wig, which was the symbol for rebirth in Egypt. And so Jesus is the beginning, but he's also the rebirth and the gate. And this is a visual image, but it's also an image that has to do with their language. And so I want to talk a little bit about the packaging of John chapter 1 and verse 8. And what you have in verse 8 is a couple of verses in John 1, verse 11 and 12. And I'm just going to read those. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We are all sons and daughters of God. God Father. Yeah, God is our heavenly Father. In the Book of Mormon, we know that when we make covenants, we make Jesus our Father. He becomes our Father by covenant. That's Mosiah 5. And in section 45, what I see in verse 8 is some words that John's using. And John's interesting because he uses this word, the word for receive. There's a couple of different words. Um, One of them is dekomai, but he's not using that one. He's using lambano, which means to grasp by the hand. And so I believe that verse 8 or John 1, 11 and 12 is temple liturgy, but more specific, it's temple literature. So these were words that would be used in the temple, but this is also a ritual that we receive him, we grasp him, and we receive him, and then he gives you power. And that word can mean power or authority or right to do many miracles. Now, typically when John uses that word, that is a word that can mean sign or token. And then to become Gignomai is usually the word that's used, to become the sons of God, even unto those that believe on his name. And the word he's using for believe has to do with trust. And the symbol for that word pistis is the handshake. That's the Roman and the Greek symbol for that word is to take someone by the hand. And so on their coins, they would actually have a handshake as the symbol for trust or faith. And that was the symbol that was used. And notice verse 8. They become the sons of God, to me, is related to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the entire New Testament. So Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 were used ritually in the temple. And in those Psalms, the king and the queen would be sat down and they would be proclaimed sons and daughters, as it were, of God. So I'm going to read Psalm 2 verse 6 and 7. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Now, I believe that this was used in a liturgical setting in the temple to all the sons and daughters of God, that that's what we're reading in Mosiah 5, that King Benjamin is having his son in his coronation ritual at the new year, and that all the sons and daughters of Israel are there gathered at the temple. We know they are, that we, they tell us in the Book of Mormon, their tents are facing the temple. This is all that Feast of Tabernacles stuff going on that we've talked about in other podcasts, and they are declared 
his son. Now, if you go to verse 8, and this is all before any of the Kirtland Temple stuff. This is way before Nauvoo. Joseph Smith is very young, and here it is right here in this setting of building the city. Because who's going to build the city? Endowed saints that have received or believed, verse 8, on my name. And that's more than just believing in Jesus. To me, that is receiving the name. And then notice what it gives you, verse 8, the power of eternal lives. So to me, Bryce, verse 8, it's like God saying, no, we have some really cool stuff going on. But in Nauvoo, it gets explained. So that's all coming out of John in the New Testament. Jesus is now pointing to the New Testament. Ironically, he's about to tell Joseph, it's now time to translate the New Testament. He's pointing them in the right direction. So after quoting a whole lot of John, now in verse 16, he kind of gives us an entire trailer version of what's coming as Joseph translates the New Testament. There are only two canonized sections of the JST. Everything else is either in the appendix or in the footnotes, and not really part of the canon, but there are two parts of the Joseph Smith translation that get canonized, one part from the Old Testament, one part from the New Testament. Moses is the JST of Genesis 1 through 6, where we get to hear Adam and Enoch and that whole story that got pulled out of the Bible. When Joseph Smith gets to Matthew 24, He makes numerous changes that are so significant and so pertinent to our day that that chapter gets canonized. It's now known as Joseph Smith Matthew in the Pearl of Great Price. It is the JST of Matthew 24. Now, that's very important to remember. Here's the setting. How many times have people asked Jesus about the second coming and he hasn't answered? In Acts chapter 1, they ask, is this the end? Is this where Zion is going to be victorious? And he basically says, that is not in your power to understand. I'm not going to answer that question. Joseph Smith asked numerous times, tell me about the second coming. And he was not given a whole lot of information. But there is one time in recorded scripture where Jesus is asked about the second coming, and he answers with great detail. It was when he took his disciples out to the Mount of Olives, the week he is going to die. Just days before his crucifixion, he takes the disciples out. After teaching in the temple, after talking to them about the destruction of the temple, he takes his disciples out to the Mount of Olives. And there he talks about the destruction of the Jews and the destruction at the second coming. And that is so significant to our day Joseph Smith's changes to that section have now become canonized and are now known as Joseph Smith Matthew. Now, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. So if you'll turn to Joseph Smith Matthew to kind of get the setting for what he's going to give in section 45, you can see that the disciples asked two questions that Jesus is going to answer. Verse 4 has the two questions. He comes out to the Mount of Olives, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, question number one, tell us when these things shall be, which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and the Jews. Now, he's going to give us a little bit of that in section 45. He's going to tell us what he told the Jews about the destruction of the temple. So they come out and say, hey, when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? When is the temple going to be destroyed? So that's the first question he's going to answer. And then he says, and what is the sign of thy coming? 
and of the end of the world or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world. So two questions. When will Jerusalem be destroyed? And when will the whole world be destroyed at thy coming? Now, in Joseph Smith Matthew, he answers the first question in verses 5 through the semicolon of verse 21. The semicolon of verse 21 is where he shifts. Starting at that semicolon throughout the rest of the chapter, he now answers the second question. What are the signs of thy coming? And while we're here, let's just do a little Joseph Smith Matthew. I know our purpose in this podcast is section 45, but while we're on the subject, Jesus is answering the question, what is life in the latter days going to be? Now, as we go through this, I'm going to make an assumption. I might be totally wrong on my assumption, but if I were to ask you, after you watch a movie that you love, what did you love about the movie? I'm going to make the assumption that the first thing out of your mouth will be what you loved the most, and the second thing will be what you loved second most. When I ask you, did you like that meal? Well, what did you love? Isn't the first thing that you tell me the thing you love the most? So when Jesus says, I have some concerns about the latter days, wouldn't the first thing out of his mouth be his biggest concern? I'm going to make the assumption that Jesus is going to list his concerns about the latter days in the order of concern. If that's the case, then you read Joseph Smith Matthew 21 and 22, after he shifts from the destruction of the Jews and goes to the destruction of the latter days, what is the Savior's biggest concern about the day in which we live? Joseph Smith, Matthew 21 and 22, he talks about don't be deceived by the imitation. Don't be fooled by the false Christs, the false prophets, the false churches, the false plans of salvation. Don't be deceived by an imitation. We see that everywhere in the scriptures. Don't be fooled by the building instead of the tree of life that Lehi saw. Don't be fooled by the whore of the earth instead of the beautiful woman that is the church in Revelation. So the Savior's number one concern is don't be fooled by an imitation. Now, hold on to that. Let me just throw some of the others in. We'll come back to that idea. Starting in 23 through 29, he talks about wars and rumors of wars and men taking swords against each other. So, the Savior's next concern is war and rumor of war, which we'll get to when we go back to section 45. And he's going to talk a lot about where we will find safety when the wars come. Verse 29, he mentions a third concern. Uh, natural disasters, famines, pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places, which he will also mention in section 45. And then verse 30, he mentions the fact that wickedness will abound. Iniquity shall abound and the love of men shall wax cold. So the Savior's top four concerns about our day seem to be don't be deceived by an imitation, which the very elect will be deceived, some of them, Wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters like earthquakes and famines and pestilence, and then an abundance of wickedness. Yeah. They apply it in Jesus's day, and they apply in our day. And I would also add that these things historically happened between Jesus's discussion with his apostles and the destruction of the temple. And without getting too bogged down with the details, 
there were individuals that rose up in Judaism that said, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I am the one who is going to liberate us. And there was even a revolt where many of the Sicarii killed the Romans, got them off the Temple Mount, and they actually even minted their own coinage and said, hey, we are Israel. And we are back. Jerusalem is back. We are our own independent nation. And the emperor in Rome sent Titus and a bunch of guys, and we'll link this in the show notes if you want to get into which unit went where and what were the siege machines like. Like You can look at these descriptions because many historians wrote stories about this, and the Jews got wrecked because they followed false Christs. They followed false teachers. Were there famines and earthquakes? Yeah, the New Testament authors talk about these things that are happening in Paul's day. What do we do with the love of men waxing cold? Well, there's a lot of ways to interpret verse 30, but it seems like the message in these verses are perpetually relevant. They applied in Jesus's day and they apply in our day. There probably were Christians that lived in 70 AD that saw the temple being attacked and thought, Jesus is coming. He said he was going to come. He said the temple was going to be destroyed. And some of those ideas were swirling around in early Christianity. And they looked at this and they said, well, what are we going to do? And so if you're sitting here now going, well, when is Jesus coming? You're not alone. For 2,000 years, Christians have wondered this very question. And I certainly don't know. But I think one of the messages that Jesus is trying to communicate is the disciples want to know when. And I don't even know if that's the main thing. He deliberately doesn't tell us when, because that's not the point. If we knew when, we would procrastinate our preparation. It's like, imagine I'm a college professor, and you have to take my class to graduate. And the grade in my class is based on a a major research paper that you write. And I give you all the details, and I tell you everything about that you need to know, and all the times I'm going to be in my office to help you, and every resource that will help you. The only thing I don't give you is a due date. I'm not going to tell you when it's due. One day I'm going to show up and call for them. And if you don't have it ready to turn in, you will fail my class. You have to have it ready. Now imagine two students. One student says, oh, he'll never call for the paper till the end of the semester. I've got plenty of time to write it and procrastinates. Yet every day he goes to class, what is he hoping? Please don't let it be today. Please don't let it be today. The other student runs out and starts writing the paper, talks to the professor, gathers the resources, gets help, and diligently writes the paper. Now, after that paper is written, tell me how that student goes to class every day. Please let today be the day. I'm ready. I'm ready to hand in this paper. If it's not today, then I'm going to make a few revisions because I'd like to change a couple things because I want to make my paper better. But if today's the day, I'm ready. Here's my paper. So the setting here is I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming because I want you to always be ready. So in the rest of Joseph Smith Matthew, Jesus gives us the antidote. The antidote to how do you not be fooled by an imitation? How do you deal with war and rumors of war? How do you deal with natural disasters? How do you deal with rising wickedness? Here are the antidotes. Antidote number one is verse 37. I'm still in Joseph Smith, Matthew, verse 37. If you want to make sure you're not deceived by the imitation, treasure up my word. Treasure up my word and everything's going to be okay. But then his focus is in verse 48. 
The answer is to always be ready. The best way to get ready for the Savior's coming is to always be ready. What we do when we are ready for his coming are the antidotes to being deceived and the wars and the wickedness. If you are ready for the Savior, you won't be deceived by the imitation, and you'll be safe in the wars, and you won't be pulled into the wickedness of the people around you. By the way, Bryce, in Christian history— The Christians were warned by prophets to flee to a place called Pella, and historically that happened. They fled to Pella. Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, I'm not saying all Christians were saved, but in the historical setting of the 19th century, how many times have we read where the Lord said, Joseph, you don't even know what's coming. Go west. He's going to say it again in section 45. Again, go Go west, west. go west. Go west. And then if you do go east, get them. And then come west. And he keeps saying this, and he'll often throw in, oh, you hear about wars in foreign countries. You don't even know what's coming. And I think about Lehi. And we have this puppet king named Zedekiah, and Lehi stands up and says, guys, the temple's going to be destroyed. And there's so many Jews, the Deuteronomists there are saying, no, the temple's not going to be destroyed because we have the promise of David. The, The temple will never be destroyed. We remember Hezekiah. When Sennacherib came with his guys, Rabshakeh and all these Assyrians, and they were destroyed, God will defend the holy city. And Lehi's like, "Mm -mm, not this time. (laughs) Only if you were righteous. And they got out. And there were other groups like the Rechabites that they got out. There were others that were warned, the faithful need not worry because he's going to pull them out. And they need to always be ready. So in verse 48, back to Joseph Smith, Matthew, be ye ready. There's the antidote. Always be ready as if he's coming today. And then he gives this little parable and talks about a guy who's hired to take care of some property. So imagine, I live in Utah. So imagine some rich person from some wonderful part of the country that doesn't have snow loves skiing. So they come out to Utah and they buy a house and say, look, when I want to ski, I'm going to come out and stay at my house and I'm going to go skiing. And they hire me to take care of their house. So let me propose two options. Bryce, number one, says to myself, oh, they're not coming in April. No one comes to Utah to go skiing in April. I don't have to have the house ready now. So I I just let the house kind of fall apart. I'll get it ready when the snow hits. I'm going to have some parties there. I'll use the property for my own purposes. And boom, they show up to go hiking up in the mountains, and they find that I have left everything fall apart part. Now tell me how they feel about me and what they're going to do with me. Now, Bryce number two, I say to myself, yeah, they probably aren't coming, but I'm going to assume that they are. I'm going to always have groceries in the fridge. I'm going to make sure the lawn is cut. I'm going to make sure the house is... I'm always going to be ready for them. And boom, they show up in April to go hiking in the mountains and they find that everything is ready for them. Now, tell me what they think about me as a person. Now, that's the parable that the Savior gives. And the whole setting here is, this is what I want to find you doing when I do come. This is how to be prepared for the second coming. Whenever it happens is by doing these things. Now, what would the next part, if Joseph Smith Matthew ends at verse 55... 
where does this thing continue? Where do we find the list of things he wants to find me doing when he shows up? Remember how this is the JST of Matthew 24? So that list is Matthew 25. You have to remember that. The setting of the parables in Matthew 25 is, this is what I want to find you doing when I come, meaning these are the things that if you're always doing them, you will survive just fine in the latter days. So in Matthew 25, what you're going to find are three very important parables. We've got the parable of the 10 virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, this is where section 45 is a golden nugget, because in section 45, he interprets the parable of the 10 virgins. He tells us what it represents. So jump back to section 45, verse 56. In that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. The oil in the vessel that the wise virgins could not share with the foolish virgins was the Holy Ghost being their guide. And notice what it says next, and they have not been deceived. So one of the most important things the Savior is shouting out to us, if you want to prevail in the latter days, if you want to make sure you and your children are not deceived by the imitations all around us, or consumed by the wars, or the natural calamities, or the wickedness of man, the antidote is, like he said back in Joseph Smith Matthew, treasure the word. And get the Spirit into your life. Let the Holy Ghost be your guide. Do you see why Russell Nelson is constantly saying, if you don't know how to get personal revelation, you will not succeed in the latter days? Same message. The ten virgins took the Holy Ghost for their guide, and they were not deceived. Now, just to throw it in, back in Matthew 25, so the parable of the ten virgins, and the next one is the parable of the talents. And I would suggest there are two messages that come out of the parable of the talents. Number one, build his kingdom. Take what he gives you and build his kingdom. And if you're the one that got five talents, build his kingdom. If you're the one that got two talents, build his kingdom to the best you can, and you'll get the same reward as the person who got five. He says to both of them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Some people have five talents, some people have two. Do what you can with your talents and build his kingdom, and you'll have a reward in his kingdom. The third person was so worried about returning empty-handed that he just held on to the talent. In other words, he would rather not try than fail. And we see so many people and organizations, I would rather not try than fail. And the Savior rebukes that as if he's saying, I would rather my people fail than not try. How about missions or family history work or asking someone out on a date or trying something new? How many people have not done something righteous because they were afraid to fail? And Jesus rebukes that. He rebuked the man who only got the one talent and said, 
that's not going to cut it in the latter days. If you want to succeed in the latter days, we have to be the kind of people that would rather fail trying than not try. It's back to that idea of a being who acts. Verse 25 of Matthew 25, where he says, I was afraid. And then in verse 24, he makes an assumption about the Lord where he's like, well, I know that you're a hard master. And so in essence, sometimes do our misconceptions of God or our own lack of confidence cause us to hesitate or to be afraid. And sometimes for me, that brings its own natural consequence. I think about Joseph Smith. He's in his 20s and the Lord tells him, go west, build a temple, build a city. And I I could just see him at night talking to Emma going, the Lord wants me to build a city, to build Zion, to build a temple. And she's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I don't know. We're going to do it. We're going to pray to get a guy who knows how to build a temple. But frankly, Emma, I really don't know, but I trust God. And I think sometimes that's that dance we always talk about of living the gospel. And I think if you're not uncomfortable living the gospel, if the Lord's not stretching you, um, ask him. Say, what would you have me do? And it seems like every time I ask that question, Bryce, the Lord always gives me something that is a little bit stretching. And it actually is, sometimes it's good because it lets you know that you're alive. But I look at verse 24 and 25 and I think, how many times have I done that? And then he says in verse 26 that he's slothful. And I'm like, oh man, I got to do better. And it applies to so many other things, doesn't it? It does. And then the last one is the sheep and the goats. Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Take care of each other. I want to find you taking care of each other. I love what C.S. Lewis said about the atomic bomb. It applies so well to the second coming. He lived in a day where the atomic bomb was just coming into its own. And he says the following about living in an atomic age. He says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age, one might ask. I am tempted to reply, why, just as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, or an age of syphilis, or an age of paralysis, or an age of air raids, and an age of railway accidents, and an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. Now this is my point. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our body. A microbe can do that but they need not dominate our minds. When Jesus comes, let him find us building his kingdom, not afraid to try, taking care of each other and using the Holy Ghost as our guide. That's such a simple remedy from the Savior himself. This is how to navigate the latter days.
live the gospel, be happy, take cookies to a neighbor. I really like that. Those three parables are different ways for Jesus to emphasize how can we approach this. And that really is what the word parable means. It literally means to throw side by side. So we're putting these two things next to each other, the condition we're living in today in 2021, and then we throw the story next to it and say, well, how is our life like this? And so hopefully that as Bryce has talked about these things, you can see yourself in every one of those situations. Yeah. Now, let's go back to section 45. Verse 16 is where he hints at what's coming. This is what I'm going to give you when you translate the New Testament. So verse 16, I will show it plainly as I showed it unto my disciples as I stood before them in the flesh. So here's the trailer of what's coming when Joseph produces Joseph Smith Matthew. And he talks about a whole lot of things. And then in verse 60, he kind of bookends it by saying, And now behold, I say unto you, it shall not be given unto you to know any further concerning this chapter until the New Testament be translated, and in it all these things shall be made known. Wherefore, I give unto you that you may now translate it. So do you see the trailer there? I gave you a little piece of what I'm going to give you when you translate the New Testament. And what I love about that is section 45 is a key in unlocking the parables of Matthew 25. But back to our present concern. The idea here is Jesus is going to prevail. So what he gives us in 45 are, this is what's going to happen to the wicked, and this is what's going to happen to the righteous. So Verse 16, he says, you, talk, you want to know about the signs of my coming? Verse 17, the day of redemption, the redemption of scattered Israel. But he starts with the Jews, just like he did in Joseph Smith Matthew, starting in verse 19, I say unto you that desolation shall come upon this generation. He's speaking to his disciples in Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. Desolation shall come upon this generation. This people shall be destroyed and scattered among the nations. This temple which ye now see shall be thrown down, that there shall not be left one stone upon the other. That was the statement from Christ that causes his disciples, when they go out to the Mount of Olives, to say, when will that happen? And notice he doesn't really answer the question when it will happen. He simply answers the question, what do you need to do to be prepared for it? By the way, in section 45, it says in verse 20 that this temple which ye now see shall be thrown down. So what Joseph is seeing is seeing a window into this discussion that Jesus is having with his Meridian disciples. And he's telling them, the Meridian disciples, that this generation is going to have this destruction. Now, historically, that all happened. The temple was destroyed. And in Joseph Smith Matthew, and it's also in the New Testament, it's referred to as the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. That is referring to the attack in 165 BC by this fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a man who was upset. The best way I can describe him is the bully that you knew in middle school whose dad was mean to him. And then when the bully came to school, he had to have somebody to punch. And so Antiochus lost a battle and he came into Jerusalem and he was so frustrated that he basically stripped the Jews of their religion. If you were circumcising your young men, they would he would hurt the child or he would hurt the mom. He would do some horrible things. He actually stripped the temple, took a pig and offered it as a sacrifice 
on their holy ground and the Jews were fired up and this initiated a revolt. And this is where we get the story of Hanukkah. And there's all these really cool stories that we'll talk more about when we get to the Old Testament. But what Jesus is doing is when he uses that phrase, the abomination of desolation, that's a code word. Just by using that phrase, it evokes an emotional response in the people that he's speaking to. And what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples is, as bad as that was, we're going to see this. And so when you read about this, the desolation in verse 20, and not one stone will be left upon it. If you look in verse 21 of section 45, it shall come to pass that this generation of Jews shall not pass away until every desolation of which I've told you concerning them must come to pass. The Jews got wrecked. That's what he's referring to. I think a big reason why the temple was destroyed, if not the reason, is because of false messiahs, that the Jews so bad wanted to have a messiah that would liberate them from Rome, and they finally did, and they succeeded for a little bit of time, and that just got them devastated and initiated uh, the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews. And so Joseph Smith, way after this, this is, you know, 1800 years later, is standing as a prophet, and God, by giving the Book of Mormon to him, is now telling Joseph and the apostles and his successors, the Jews are going to come home. And today we live in a world in 2021 where Israel is a state, it's a nation, and the Jews are being gathered physically, but they're not yet gathered spiritually. And that macro story of the Jewish people is a thread that's woven through the Doctrine and Covenants. That's an important thread to understand as a backdrop to all of this, and because he, Lord loves these people. And there's one more piece. That last statement, the Lord loves these people. Turn to verse 51. Then shall the Jews look upon me. Now, remember, the Jews as a people are still waiting for the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah comes, when the lordly lion shows up that they've been expecting, verse 51, then shall the Jews look upon me and say, What are these wounds in thine hands and in thine feet? Then shall they know that I am the Lord. For I will say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. And then three very painful words. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. Then shall they weep because of their iniquities, and they shall lament because they persecuted their king. But what's implied in this is that Jesus will welcome them home. He is appearing unto them not to destroy them, but in fulfillment of the prophecy. He loves them. He has not forgotten his people. And even though as a group they rejected him, He will come back and welcome them home. He will be victorious. And that's how the story ends. It's not just that they were destroyed and scattered. It's that they will be gathered and welcomed home. And they will acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. It's such a big message of the Old Testament that a remnant shall return that they will be able to be back, the land will be fertile, they'll have a temple, and they'll have a king. And they look forward to that, as do I. And so section 45 is a really good frame that you can use to look through to read the Old Testament. 
there are many frames to read the Old Testament through, and the Doctrine and Covenants is an excellent frame to help unpack this. When we do Old Testament, we'll spend more time on Zechariah 12 and 13, but in a 30-second little mini-statement, Zechariah, at the end, is this massive story of how they're going to have the land fertile again, and God's going to redeem them, and it's a huge cosmic battle, and pieces of it, you can see where it's kind of stitched together. I don't think it's a perfect text, and so I think the Lord in section 45 is giving us what's important, is that the Lord's going to come back. Yeah. So early saints in Kirtland that are struggling because of the publication of all these false reports and people are turning away from the church. And again, in 2021, after a pandemic where lives have been lost and jobs have been lost and lives have been interrupted, again, the message is he is going to be victorious. So we saw it with the Jews. Now let's see it again with the Gentiles in the latter days. So starting in verse 25 of section 45, we transition from Jews to Gentiles to the times of the Gentiles. Now he's going to list all of the negative things that the latter days are going to bring. Notice in verse 26, it's wars and rumors of wars. It's men's hearts shall fail them. 27, the love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. All of these are the things he's going to mention in Joseph Smith Matthew. The things you and I deal with every day. News reports about wickedness increasing and war and men's hearts failing them. But that's not all bad news. Look at verse 28. A light shall break forth. The light is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the fullness of the gospel. A light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness, and it'll be the fullness. Now, the reality 29 is a lot of people are going to reject it, and the reason they'll reject it is because they perceive not the light. They turn their hearts from him because of the precepts of men. I think 29 is also an invitation for us to articulate the message better. We can always do better. They perceive it. They don't perceive it, I mean. So in verse 29, how can I be better? And what's interesting, if you read Nephi in the Book of Mormon, Nephi's version of the Tree of Life talks about the Gentiles are blinded to the Book of Mormon, and yet it's the Book of Mormon that would take the blinders off, right? Doesn't the rod lead us through the darkness? So they're blinded to the very thing that will lead them out of the darkness. So what's the solution? The Lord needs servants who will be temporarily be the rod of iron to help the world take the blinders off, and then the Book of Mormon can lead them out of the darkness. We are the interim that helps them see the light. It's our relationship. It's what Ammon did to Lamoni by winning his heart through service and kindness. And Lamoni says, who art thou? And then they have that discussion. That's what the Lord is calling for, is missionaries to help the the world see the light. Unfortunately, there will be a lot that reject. Therefore, verse 30, an overflowing scourge and a desolating sickness shall cover the land. Now, notice the next word, and this is what we need to shout from the rooftops. We usually put a period there, and we don't hear the next word. An overflowing scourge, for a desolating sickness shall cover the land, but my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. Now, I know I read that most of my life as 
they won't move themselves. They will stay firm, and there's certainly a reference to that. But now I read it this way. When you stand in holy places, you won't be moved out of your place by the enemy. Your family will be secure and won't be moved. Unfortunately, among the wicked, men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. 33, earthquakes, just like we saw in Joseph Smith Matthew. 33, men will harden their hearts against me. They'll take up the sword one against another, and they will kill each other. But now we get to verse 35. Be not troubled. Be not troubled. Now, the whole rest of the chapter is going to answer the question why we shouldn't be troubled. It's not going to be a quick answer. You got to hold off for the whole rest of the section. But this is why those who live in the latter days, among the earthquakes, among the wars, among the deception, among the wickedness, this is why we shouldn't be troubled. And so let's start. First of all, verse 36. It's because the light shall break forth. They, the light shall begin to break forth. I love that King James Matthew 24 says that he shall come like lightning. And Joseph Smith changes that in Joseph Smith Matthew 2, it shall be the sun of the morning. Instead of lightning that, boom, suddenly is there, it's like a sunrise. When the sun finally shows its face, how long has the light been around? The restoration is the early part of the sunrise, before the sun actually shows his face. So, again, a reference that the light shall begin to break forth. Verse 39, he that feareth me shall be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come. 40, they will see signs and wonders. Even though, verse 41, there will be blood and fire and vapor and smoke, even though the sun shall be darkened, even though the moon will turn to blood. And the reason is the remnant shall be gathered unto this place. The remnant shall be gathered unto this place. God is going to have us in a safe place. Now, we're going to end section 45 by talking about that physical place. But there is also a spiritual place today. Even though we haven't built the New Jerusalem yet, there is a spiritual place we can gather to. Do you remember that verse in section 29? If you gather to this place, you will be prepared in all things against the day when wrath and tribulation are poured out upon the wicked. We don't need to worry because we will be in the place he needs us to be. He's going to use the example of the Civil War. Jumping to 62, great things await you. You hear of wars in foreign lands, but I say unto you, they are nigh even at your doors, and not many years hence, like 30 years hence, ye shall hear of wars in your own land. Wherefore, the Lord hath said, gather ye out from the eastern lands. Assemble yourselves together, ye elders of the church. Go ye forth into the western countries. Just like the Lord had the church in a safe place when civil war broke out in the United States and brother was killing brother. 
the Lord will have us in a safe place when the wars of the latter days break out. When again, people are killing each other, we will be in a safe place. Now, right now, that's a spiritual safe place. But we will talk momentarily about the physical safe place where we're going to go to. Back to verse 44. They shall look for me and behold, I will come. And they shall see me in the clouds of heaven clothed with power and great glory. Now, I love what he does next. In third Nephi, in the meridian of time, but I love the third Nephi version, they sat in darkness for three days. Now, I have 10 children, and I know what children would do in darkness. And I know how terrifying it would be for my family to sit in darkness for three days, having known the destruction all around us. And the Lord did something in that darkness that I think was the greatest gift he could have given them, that everything was okay. I know technically it didn't happen in the darkness because it had to happen afterwards. But shortly after the darkness was over, he rose the dead. I can't tell you what would be more comforting in the middle of a darkness for my family than to have my father suddenly knock at the door and be back. To have the little girl that my wife and I never met suddenly walk into our family. Nothing outside our home would matter anymore. And Jesus says, do you understand what's coming? In the middle of the fire and the vapors and the smoke and the wars and the earthquakes, verse 45, all the saints that have slept shall come forth to meet me in the cloud. And nothing else really matters. And nothing else matters. Grandma would be back. The people we loved would suddenly be back. I love verse 46. Tell me what kind of God this is. If you have slept in peace, blessed are you. For as you now behold me and know that I am, even so ye come unto me and your soul shall live. And your redemption shall be perfected. And the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth. He draws attention to a resurrection in the middle of the chaos. We're going to see our loved ones again. And the topography to me is telling this story. So if you stand where the old temple was and you look east, you're looking at the Mount of Olives. Or if you walk across the Kidron Valley and you go up to the Mount of Olives and then you look west, you're looking at Jerusalem. Right in that valley, there's thousands upon thousands upon so many dead people. They're stacked on top of each other. It's just this massive cemetery in the Kidron Valley, which that word means bitterness or darkness. So that's Psalm 23. When Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he walks across the valley, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's the Kidron. He goes into the Mount of Olives to bleed from every pore and start the atonement. Look what it says in verse 48. The Lord's going to set his foot upon this mount and it shall cleave in twain. Now we usually read that as a war story. This is coming out of the stuff in the Old Testament that the Savior's going to come down, the mount's going to cleave in twain. And we usually read it as 
you know, verse 50, the calamity is going to cover the mocker and they're going to be consumed and hewn down and cast into the fire. And then the Jews are going to be saved. And I like this as a story of great conflict where they're redeemed and the Messiah has come and he shows them who he is. This is the king who they didn't even know it was him and he's here and he shows them who he is. But I also see this as exactly like the whole time you were talking, Bryce, I was like, this is even more important than the war story. And it's our, we're going to see our loved ones again. And look at the Mount of Olives. That's the symbol for the victory over sin. And then if you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look west, that mount is the symbol of victory over death. And it's holy and it's sacred. And look in verse 45. The saints that have slept shall come forth and meet me in the cloud. Well, that is in your face if you stand on either one of those mountains because the valley is literally riddled with the dead that hope for a resurrection. Middle of verse 46, if you come unto him, your souls shall live. So I just wanted to paint a little picture of what Bryce is saying using the sacred dirt between these two hills where Jesus on one conquered sin and on the other he conquered death. Now I know he did both, but when we read about Gethsemane, we're usually focusing on he bled from every pore, he conquered these things. And so I think it's beautiful poetry. Joseph Smith has never set foot in these lands, but as I read 40 through 48, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is the Holy Land right there in front of us. It's beautiful. It's beautiful symbolism. And again, align your life with the Savior and we will be victorious, even though there are temporary moments where it looks like evil is winning. Here's what's going to happen to those who fight against God. Verse 49, they that have laughed shall see their folly. Could I shout that from the rooftops? Because there are a whole lot of people laughing at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But they that have laughed shall see their folly. And calamity shall cover the mocker and the scorner shall be consumed. I love the reference in verse 54, then shall the heathen nations be redeemed that knew no law. They shall be redeemed and be part of the first resurrection. I think that tells us what a kind and forgiving and understanding Messiah we have. You cannot be held accountable for a law you didn't know you were breaking. It has to include agency. Verse 55, Satan will be bound. Why? Not because he's physically taken and kicked out. It's because he shall have no place in the hearts of the children of men, which suggests I can bind Satan today. When I make no place for him in my thoughts and in my heart, he has no power over me, and he is bound. Do you see what the Savior is doing here? The victory of Christ. Jesus is victorious. And during the millennium, boy, I look forward to verse 58. The earth shall be given to them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. And the Lord shall be in their midst, and the glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. The victory of Christ. Hang on, Joseph and the early saints. Hang on, Latter-day Saints in 2021. Jesus is going to be victorious. Sometimes balancing that with the statement about the heathen nations can be hard. In 1871, Brigham Young gave a talk, and Wilfer Woodruff wrote this in his journal, and it really resonates with me when it comes to the complexity of family relationships and not everybody being in the same place. 
This is what he said. Wilford Woodruff writes, President Young spoke for about 45 minutes, and it was one of the most powerful and instructive discourses I've ever heard in my life. Well, that should get your ears perked up like, okay, well, what did he say? And then Wilford writes, there was a large number of Gentiles, including members of Congress and the chief justice of the territory, seven priests of other churches, and many other dignitaries. And if you've read a little bit about Brigham Young's history, when Congress started sending magistrates and officials from Washington to kind of run things in, in uh, Utah, Brigham was not very pleased with this. I mean, I'm, I'm putting it lightly. And so what Wilford's doing is he's painting you a picture of the president of the church giving a talk, and he's amongst people that certainly don't believe what he believes. And I think it's safe to say that some of these guys are not his friends. And so Wilfred Woodruff says, this is a really good talk. And so this is what he sums it up in his journal. He writes this, Brigham spoke in great power. Among his remarks, he said that the Lord does not require us to force men to embrace the gospel of Christ. If he did, He would require us to do what he will not do himself, for he gives all men their agency and sets life and death before them and lets them choose for themselves. And I really like that because amidst all these things that we're talking about with taking the spirit and the importance of following the Savior, verse 54 sits right in this revelation, that the heathen nations shall be redeemed. And I see this as the God in heaven, I'm back to this image of his hands are open and he's going to lay the paths before you and he's going to let you choose. And so I see, and Brigham's talked about this, Brigham has given uh, discourses where he says in the millennium, there'll be people that are not of our faith and the Lord will allow them to choose. And I think one way we can apply this in our lives is we all have family members that are in different paths. They're all in different places. And if there's one thing I can say, it's this. We need to meet people where they are. Jesus was always doing that. He was meeting them where they were, and he had a lot to give. But if they're not ready for it, he couldn't give it to them. And so, But he all, did give them what they were ready what for. They're ready, yeah, yeah. So in all things, wherever you are, we're all in different places. I think what I'm trying to, to emphasize here is this idea of patience Otherwise, we wouldn't have verse 54. I really like that in the midst of all this stuff, the Lord gave us verse 54, which, by the way, if you're in 1831 and you're a Christian, nobody's talking like this. There's nobody saying, oh, by the way, the heathen nations are going to be redeemed. Like that, that had to be like a bomb went off. And Joseph, once again, is showing us who God is. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there? This is kind of millennial stuff. And it's 2021, and we're not in the millennium. So how do we get there? And that's the end of section 45. We are going to build the greatest city that earth has ever known. We are going to build another city of Enoch. So the Lord, after 62 through 64, sending them out west, which is a great symbol of, I'm going to save you from the Civil War by putting you in Utah— I'm going to save you from the challenges of the second coming by putting you in Zion. So verse 65 is a reference again to the city of Enoch. One heart, one mind, no poor among you. So he's referring to this Zion state. And now verse 66, it shall be called the new Jerusalem. We are going to build the greatest city 
forever. Now, let me pause and give you a vision of that city. This vision comes from John Taylor. John Taylor wrote the following. We believe that God is going to revolutionize the earth to purge it from iniquity of every kind and introduce righteousness of every kind until the great millennium is fully introduced. We believe, moreover, that God, having commenced his work, will continue to reveal and make manifest his will to his priesthood, to his church and kingdom on the earth, and that among this people there will be an embodiment of virtue, of truth, of holiness, of integrity, of fidelity, of wisdom, and of the knowledge of God. We believe that we shall rear splendid edifices, magnificent temples, and beautiful cities that shall become the pride, praise, and glory of the whole earth. We believe that this people will excel in literature, in science, in the arts, and in manufacturers. In fact, if there's anything great noble, dignified, exalted, anything pure or holy or virtuous or lovely, anything that is calculated to exalt or ennoble the human mind to dignify and elevate the people, it will be found among the people of the saints of the Most High God. This is only a faint outline of some of the views in relation to these things, and hence we talk of returning to Jackson County to build the most magnificent temple that ever was formed on the earth, and the most splendid city that was ever erected, yea, cities, if you please, and the people from the president down will all be under the guidance and direction of the Lord in all the pursuits of human life until eventually they will be enabled to erect cities that will be fit to be caught up that when Zion descends from above, Zion will also ascend from beneath and be prepared to associate with those from above. The people will be so perfected and so purified, ennobled, exalted, and dignified in their feelings, and so truly humble and most worthy, virtuous, and intelligent, that they will be fit when caught up to associate with the Zion that shall come down from God out of heaven. If we could keep our eyes upon this a little while and then look back to where we came from, examine our present position, and see the depravity, ignorance, and corruption that exists where we have come from and that yet exists among us, it is evident that some great revolution, some mighty change has got to transpire to revolutionize our minds, our feelings, our judgment, our pursuits and actions, and in fact to control and influence us throughout before anything of this kind can take place. No wonder that Joseph Smith should say that he felt himself shut up in a nutshell. There was no power of expansion. It was difficult for him to reveal and communicate the things of God because there was no place to receive them. What he had to communicate was so much more comprehensive, enlightened and dignified than that which the people generally knew and comprehended. It was difficult for him to speak. Yet this being a fact, and these being part of the things we expect to accomplish, there must be a beginning somewhere. And if we do squirm once in a while, while it is not strange, because it is so difficult for the people to comprehend the things which are for their benefit, we have been brought up so ignorantly 
and our ideas and views so contracted, it is scarcely possible to receive the things of God as they exist in His bosom. It is easy for us to talk about heaven and about going to Jackson County and about building up the kingdom of God. It is easy to sing about it and pray about it, but it is another thing to do it. It's got to start sometime. Why not with us? Why not today? Why not become the saints that can build this Zion? I really love that quote. And I really do believe that if we sit on our hands and think, okay, Jesus is going to come and fix everything, I don't think that is what John Taylor's saying. I think his invitation is, no, we've got to start. And so if we've got to start and we've got to do it, we should have the attitude the Lord has, where we meet people where they are, we do what we can, and we trust the Lord Hugh Nibley said, the belief that Zion is possible on the earth, that men possess the capacity to receive it right here and are therefore under obligation to waste no time in moving in the direction of Zion. The instant you realize this, that Zion's a possibility, you have no choice but to identify with the program and help bring it about as quickly as you can. That's Hugh Nibley saying the same thing John Taylor's saying. He's read this quote, and I think this is the invitation. How do we get ready? We roll up our sleeves. And we just keep the covenants. All the tools are in our disposal. Everything we need to build Zion has been given to us right now. We just need to keep the covenants. We will get more instructions as we need it and as we're ready for it. But right now, we have the information we need right now. Let's build temples. Let's preach the gospel. Let's live our covenants and become the kind of people that can build the greatest city, a city worthy of its king, a city that rivals the city of Enoch. Now, listen to the description of this city, and you'll understand why we're going to be so safe in the latter days, when the second coming approaches. Going back to 66, it shall be called a new Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. And the glory of the Lord shall be there, and the terror of the Lord shall also be there, depending on which side you're on, insomuch that the wicked will not come unto it, and it shall be called Zion." And it shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. So we're going to be safe in Zion when the wars break out. There will be gathered into it out of every nation under heaven. And it shall be, ready, I'm going to read this slowly so you can hear it. It shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. Think of the civil war and where the saints were and understand that the same thing's going to happen in the end of this world. And we can also think about how we communicate. People are going to say things about us. We need not be at war. Let's find a way to communicate our faith in Christ without becoming warlike. Without picking up the sword. Yeah. The only people that shall not be at war with one with another. Now, they're going to want to attack us because they will hate Zion, but it won't work. Verse 71, it shall come to pass that the righteous shall be gathered out from among all nations and shall come to Zion singing with songs of everlasting joy.
Jesus will be victorious. Choose today to join the fight. Lay down your weapons of war. Lay down the weapons of your rebellion. And let's build the city. I think it starts by building me. I'm going to build me into a Zion person. And then I'm going to build my family into a Zion family. And maybe I can contribute to building my ward into a Zion ward. That's where it starts. It doesn't start when Jesus comes. It starts when we finally rise up and put on our beautiful garments and become the people he has been telling so many people throughout the ages that we would be. We are the hope of Israel. And we need to remember that Jesus is going to be victorious. Let's choose to be on his team. And with that, we come to the end of section 45. What a wonderful section. We'll see you next time where we pick it up in section 46 and continue. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.